It's good to see you. We're going to get right into it this morning. Meredith just read out of John's gospel. If you've got a black, there's, there's black Bibles around the room. If you've got a Bible app on your phone or um, your own physical Bible, I hope you do. Grab those and open them up to John chapter 15. I don't know what page it's on in the black Bibles around the room, but if somebody gets there, uh, just shout it out so other people can find their way fairly quickly. We are in this series. Uh, it's just a, a for the month of January called Abide. We're soaking, saturating ourselves in John chapter 15. We're actually uh, using an acronym to kind of guide us through this series. And so last week, my message was just out of verse one, and it was titled Attention. Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener, or my father is the vine dresser. And so we just looked at how Jesus is eternal, this I am statement. He says, I am. He was referencing his oneness with his father and our father, and then he said, I'm the true vine. Israel saw themselves as the hope of the world and the mediator between God and the other surrounding nations. And Jesus said, on every point where you have failed, I have been faithful. I'm actually the true vine. Israel, you're not the true vine. I am. My father is the gardener, meaning that his agenda and Jesus's agenda are one. Jesus isn't just taming the rough edges of this grumpy old guy in the Old Testament, but actually... He, the Father's will is Jesus's will, and Jesus's will is the Father's will. So this morning, we're um, using this B in the acronym ABIDE. We will bear lasting fruit through abiding roots. We're going to be just centered in verses two through four. Next week, we'll look at in Christ, we persevere, verses five and six. Then after that, depend on prayer, verses seven through nine. Trevor will teach that. And then extensive joy in the love of Christ, verses 10 through 17. Now, we've got some uh, free books. If you were not here last week, there's a book called Gentle and Lowly that's on a table over here. It's our gift to you. Crossway, a Christian publisher, gave those books to us. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's kind of a, a devotional look at Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the only place in all of the Bible that Jesus tells us about his heart. Grab that book. It's a gift to you. And then we also have some bracelets. They just say abide uh, on them. Feel free to grab one of those as well. We've got them for children and for adults. Okay, so there is a fair amount going on in these three verses that we're going to be in this morning. John chapter 15, verses 2 through Four. I'm just going to read it again just so that we can hone and focus in here. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. That word clean is the same exact word as prune. So you could read it, already you are clean or already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. We'll talk about that in a bit. Verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. This is God's word to us. There's a fair amount going on in these three verses and the overall meaning for us is, it's fairly plain. There's some branches that bear fruit. There's some branches that do not. The branches that don't bear fruit, think grapes on a vine, they get cut off and they get taken away. The branches that do bear fruit, they get cut back 
so that they will produce even more fruit. And the way uh, to produce the fruit that the, God, the gardener, our father, is looking for, according to Jesus, is to attach oneself deeply into the vine. Think of, hold on for dear life. Attach oneself deeply into the life source, the true vine, who Jesus says he is. Even when pruned back, you'll always grow forward. That's a promise of Jesus to us. Now, I understand that upon reading, uh, reading these verses, hold on a second here, I'm having some issues. I understand that uh, there, there are, when you read verses like, man, branches that don't bear fruit get cut off and hauled away and burned, like that strikes some fear in the heart, especially of timid Christians. A verse like that should always produce honest, self-examining questions in the heart of every Christian, no matter what. But if you have a history of fearing God to the degree that you feel like you're just one bad word or one bad action away from being cut off, dragged away, and burned, keeping with the language of this passage, then you may be unsettled right now. That might unsettle you. And I want to speak directly to you. If, if you identify as a, as a person in that category, I want to speak directly to you. I want to ask you the question, do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Though you don't see him, you love him. Do you forget him often? Do you sin against him and rebel against him? And yet you keep coming back. Do you return? Though even you suffer and you get pruned back, does it seem that you grow forward? Like, just to talk honestly for a moment, you want feet, but it seems like you only get inches at every, over time, in terms of your own growth. Jesus invites you this morning to listen to him without fear to listen to him with ears eager to have your love of Christ and obedience to him stoked, stoked up. He's speaking to you. I just quoted the passage a little bit ago, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. A yoke is a, a piece of wood in ancient times that would be, and, and modern too, that would, be, um, that would be fastened to two cattle or oxen. And this yoke would yoke them together. And so the two would pull together in unison. And what Jesus is inviting us to do, inviting you to do, is to yoke yourself to him, to literally stay put next to him and to learn from him and to go forward with him. Now, that may be who you are. You may be timid. You may be fearful. You might, it has something to do with the church that you grew up in or who you were discipled by or how you were raised and even just personality. But there are also those of you in the room who aren't timid Christians. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you, you know that through and through. You're just, you're honest about it. I'm, I'm here, I'm exploring some things. I'm looking at the claims of Jesus, but I'm not fully convinced 
maybe even kind of a subset of that category, you've been putting him off for months and for years. You've been refusing to put your faith in him. So this passage that we're in today is the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal God, warning you and inviting you to come to him and to find your one true life. The source of all meaning, the source of ultimate purpose. He's inviting you, and it's a two-edged coin, a two-sided coin. He's warning you too. Now, there may be others in the room this morning who are in yet another category. You profess Christ, but you don't participate with him. There's profession, yeah, I believe, but there's no practice. The fruit of your life isn't actually in keeping with what you say is true and what you say you believe. So what I, what I mean is that you call yourself a Christian and you think of yourself a Christian as a Christian, but really you're, you're blending in and not much else. So you're around the church, but not necessarily a part of Jesus' church. Jesus of Nazareth invites you to humble yourself and to bend your knee to him and to give him your allegiance. He is a king. But if you refuse, Jesus of Nazareth will consider you an outsider and you'll have no part in his kingdom. Those are sober words for us this morning. Finally, there are followers of Jesus in the room who are, you rejoice in your Lord. Um, you keep stumbling forward. You're just kind of falling all over yourself, but you just, you just keep progressing, maybe not captivated by fear as much as you just kind of bumble and stumble your way forward. I'm one of those years of idiotic mistakes relying on Jesus's inexhaustible grace over and over and over and over again, daily. A favorite pastor of mine, he, he, said, he has this three-part saying. He says, one, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. And three, anybody can get in on this. And so, wherever you find yourself in any of these categories, maybe you're, they don't quite peg you, but you're, you identify with one of those categories, there's invitation to you. Yeah, complete idiots. Our future in Christ is incredibly bright, and you can get in on this. Now, before we get into the actual text, we need to remember something important, and it's about the literature that we are approaching this morning. In John chapter 15, Jesus is using metaphor. And metaphor is like a window. If you just saw what I did there, I used metaphor to describe metaphor. Metaphor is like a window. You see through it, but you don't necessarily see what's behind you. So metaphor is meant to help you see truth and see beauty with more clarity, but metaphor isn't designed to show you and teach you everything that could be understood about a given topic. You can, if you're looking through a window, you can see what's in front of you, you can see what's out to the side, but when your forehead hits the window, you can't even see really what's behind you in your periphery. You certainly can't see what is behind you, only what's in front. So here's my point. It's possible to push metaphors too far. 
And I think there are some instances, we're going to get into one of them today in this text, where we have a temptation to push the metaphor too far and to try to make it say or explain what it's not trying to say or explain. So if we've got questions, great, we can ask those questions, but we also need to understand that the metaphor isn't possibly trying to answer the questions that we are asking. I want us to be mindful of that dynamic. Last, so many ways, there's so many ways to preach John chapter 15. If you, if I task you, if I task everyone in this room, I asked every, every single person to give a three-minute message on John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, we would have a hundred different little mini-sermonettes. There is so much in this text. Like, you could preach it a million different ways. I've been reading commentators. I've been listening to preachers um, preach this text, and they're all, like, taking a different approach. It's like this multifaceted diamond. You just look at various sides of it, and there's more nugget and more beauty and more color and light there. So last year, we in January, we did a, a series to start out the year called Abide, preached two sermons out of John chapter 15. This month, we're going to preach five out of John 15, and all of them are going to be completely different. And so my hope this morning is to bring you some clarity to several parts of John chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, and stir you to reflect on the truth that's there and how this truth interacts with your own life. Now, where are we going this morning? Roadmap. I'm going to answer a few questions. What's the fruit that's immediately in view in John chapter 15? What is the relationship between the vine and the branches? And what is the difference between cutting and pruning? I think all of those um, questions will be answered to some degree, though not exhaustively. So how does this passage help you and I go forward? Today's January 9th, 2022. Like, where does this text intersect with your life, your real life? I believe that there's a takeaway for everyone in the room this morning. Here's my first point. Last week, I had kind of a big idea and some points that supported it. This week, I'm just, I'm just grabbing um, points out of the text. There's not a big idea, but there's three or four kind of main like takeaways in this passage. Again, you can mine this in a, in a host of different ways. Here's, I'm going to put my cards right out on the table this morning. I think the fruit that Jesus has in mind in this passage is brotherly love. The fruit that Jesus is aiming at in this passage is that we would love one another. All right, Bible's open. Got them? No? Okay, let's do this. Verse 8, I want you to just go up to verse 8. We're actually camped in verses 2 through 4, but I want to do a little bit of a, a survey here. Look at verse 8. Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, It glorifies my Father when you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. So the Father's glorified when you bear much fruit and prove, so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus is after a kind of fruitfulness in his people that proves, his language, our discipleship to him. So, for example, if I am your disciple, if I'm your disciple, how do I prove that I am your disciple, that I'm apprentice to you. You're the master, I'm the learner. How do I prove it? I do what you tell me to do. I follow your instructions. The teacher, you, has the knowledge. The disciple bears the responsibility to follow that 
knowledge. Now look at verse 4. This is part of the passage that we're in today. The first words, abide in me. Should we do that? Yes. This is a command. It's an imperative. Abide in me. He says it all over this passage in John chapter 15. Abide in me. It's not a suggestion. Abiding in Christ is not just like, take it or leave it. It's actually imperative command that Jesus is bringing forward to his disciples saying, this is the path to bearing fruit. Look at verse 5. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. So if you abide, you will bear fruit. Go down to verse 9. Again, abide, and he, and he changes it a little bit here. He kind of gives us some more depth and detail. Abide where? Abide in my love. Again, a command. What, what is he uh, insinuating here? Abide in my love. What does it look like for us in our everyday life? January 9th, 2022. Think about, rehearse, consider, preach to your own soul the ways that I love you that I've come to you. While you were a mess, baby in poopy diapers, I came to clean you up and to help you and to guide you and to instruct you to redeem and to clean, to help you persevere. Abide in the love of Christ. Again, a command. Now look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Okay. Quick time out on verse 10. The way that verse 10 reads, especially in the ESV, is really clunky. That's the version I'm reading out of. Um, we look at it as only if then, meaning if we keep Jesus' commandments, then he'll love us. But that's not exactly the sense here. The sense is that as we keep Jesus' commands, we are actively making ourselves at home in his love. There's a difference. I'll explain it in a moment. Okay. Imagine for just a second that the pipes in your house, the, the, it's cold outside, right? The, the pipes in your house, they freeze and they burst. Maybe you've had this unfortunate experience. I have not. I don't want it. Yes, somebody has. Everything floods, total loss. You can't live there. Now imagine a, a close friend of yours finds out that the pipes in your house froze and burst, and they come to you and they say, hey, we're sorry that your place is unlivable right now. Come and stay with us. Uh, we can get a hotel. No, no, no. Stay with us. You're staying with us. They're giving you a sort of command. For you and I to honor that command from our close friend means that we stay with them and we make ourselves at home with them. You show them honor by relenting and by staying there. You didn't actually stay with them so that they would love you. You stayed with them because they do, because they've already initiated. Their love has already been expended and directed straight at you. That's the sense here. Jesus' command to abide is to remain in his love. It's available, stay in it. Remaining in his love honors him. You could say it gladdens both he and his father's heart. Why? Because they're one. They're one. This is what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit want for you and I is to abide in God's love. Now, 
back to, that was a bit of an aside on verse 10, back to proving ourselves as Jesus' disciples. He says, abide in me. He says things like, abide in my love. He says them a few times. And then he starts saying things about keeping his commandments. What are Jesus' commandments? We're going to find a direct answer in verse 12. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. So there's example here, but there's also command. Abide in my, that you love one another, rather, as I have loved you. And he says it again. He repeats it in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus hammers loving one another like crazy in John's gospel. And the heat really gets turned up in, ver- in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. If you open your Bible, if you've got a red letter version, you're going to see that these pages are just, five chapters are just spilling over with red letters. Jesus is teaching his disciples in these chapters, but he's also praying. There's his prayers for disciples and prayers to the Father, just between he and Father um, that are relayed in these passages. Jesus probably told his disciples later on what he was praying and what he was thinking through. Now there's a a verse, like he's hammering loving one another over and over and over again in these chapters. And in chapter 13 is where he kind of sets up where he's going and where he sets up everything that we're now reading in chapter 15. He says in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. It's apparently a new commandment. This is like, this feels a little different than the Judaism that they have been a part of for generations. Jesus says, just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. There's going to be a sort of proving of our discipleship, even to a witnessing world, that we are his. The whole world is going to know that you guys are legit, that there's substance, that you're remaining in my love, that there's supernatural power within you and around you based on the way that you exercise love for each other. By this, all people know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it couldn't be more straightforward for us. I don't think it could be any more straightforward for us. The way that we choose to treat one another is what proves we're Jesus' disciples. Did you hear that? The quality of our abiding is revealed in how we treat each other. The quality of our abiding in Christ is revealed by how we treat one another. The fruit that Jesus is looking for here in John chapter 15 is brotherly love. Now, there's lots of other kind of fruit that's implied alongside this, but there's kind of a big E on the eye chart in John 15 as far as it relates to fruit and it's brotherly love. It's love for one another. Our fruitfulness is concretely evidenced in how we love others. You with me? Second point, there are people who are around the vine, but not in the vine. There are, based on what Jesus is saying in chapter 2, or in chapter 15, verse 2, there are people who are around the vine, but not in the vine. Or maybe they're in the vine, but only superficially. Some commentators see verse 2 as saying that there are branches in Christ who are unfruitful, 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I think this is one of the places where the metaphor can be pushed too far. Why? Because verse 6 talks about those same branches. If you go down and you look at verse 6, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And Jesus says elsewhere, uh, the only way to, uh, to bearing fruit is through abiding. So some of these branches are superficially, they look to be in him, but they're not actually in him. I'm not convinced that what he's trying to do in this metaphor in verse 6 is making a definite statement about hell and about fire, although Jesus often speaks of fire when he speaks of hell. Fire is used in two main ways in our New Testaments when it relates to people. It's used in a refining way, and it's also used as a means of judgment. And so in a refining way, think about smeltering and the process of fine metals. You burn away all of the impurities and the, and the pure metal emerges. That's a way that fire is used to refine um, a, a believer. It comes through pruning, comes through suffering, it comes through adversity. But also, I think that verse 6 absolutely has judgment in view. I mean, we can see it. It's plain on the page. Fruitless branches have judgment in their future, not refinement. Those who aren't, who are not in the vine, have everything to fear. And once you're cut off, it will always hurt. To be cut off from the true life source, the vine, means only one thing. It means death. Nature proves this to us, does it not? What happens? Like Every single time a branch gets cut off a tree, the branch dies without fail. The branch might be connected to the tree and fruitless and dying, but in horticulture, there's possibility to actually revive those branches. They're still there. There's still time. But once it's cut off, game over. So there's urgency here in Jesus' invitation to you. There's urgency here. Now, speaking of pushing this metaphor a bit too far. Uh, I want to uh, take just a second and say something related, but not in immediate view here in this metaphor. I don't think that Jesus is necessarily trying to push this forward with his metaphor. Um, one, uh, but it needs to be said, and it's evidence throughout the rest of the scriptures. One goal of people who are in the vine, those who are abiding and bearing fruit, one of the goals is that we would get others into the vine that we would help others attach deeply into the vine. Why? It's by grace that you and I ended up in the vine in the first place. Like, we didn't make ourselves branches. We just showed up. Something happened to us. And, like, and, and, and the real Jesus made himself appear and made himself real and relevant to us. It's by grace that we ended up in the vine. We didn't engineer it or organize it or do it ourselves. So why not other undeserving people too? Jesus is making us into, those of us who are in the vine, he's making us into whole hearts, not half hearts. He's making us, he's renewing us into a wholehearted people. Some of those of us who are in this room are half hearts. And Jesus is speaking straight into the stuff of your life. And he and we, because we're wanting to love you like he has first loved us, 
We want you to reside in the vine. We want you to attach yourself deeply to the Lord Jesus Christ and to rely on him and depend on him. There's some in this room who are discouraged. You're really, really, really discouraged as you try to walk out life alongside Christ. Maybe because you can't seem to get your act together. Like it's one thing over another. You're, you're, you're trying, but repeated setbacks. There may be an abundance of suffering in your life. There may be an abundance of just a lack of follow through. You may be struggling with addiction. You may be struggling with mental health challenges. There may be, there's a host of different reasons why you might find yourself in the category of discouraged and I want you to hear this, that Jesus calls you to wholeheartedness. And you need to understand that wholeheartedness rarely comes in a day. It's not like that. It's incremental. From one degree of glory to another. Click, click, click. Think of it like quarter inch. Day by day, you're just growing a quarter inch. And when you look back at yesterday, you don't really see much growth because a quarter inch is not very much. But when you and I start to string together a year of quarter inch days, what happens? Eight feet. That's what happens in a year. You're like, oh, hey, there's some growth. That's observable. Small changes over long periods of time yield great results. Do not look down on your everyday, unspectacular acts of obedience from day to day to day. He is not looking for you to transform yourself. He's not looking for you to be fast. He's not looking for you to be spectacular. He's looking for you to exercise faith in him. He's not looking for you to transform yourself. He's looking for you to depend on him for your transformation. That's faith. Religion says, I've got to clean myself up so that God will love me. The gospel says something altogether different. I've got to believe in Christ. Jesus loves me so much that he cleans up after me. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are some who are around the vine but not in the vine and I want you to take heart and to assess your life and to examine. There are those who are in the vine, this is my third point, that have nothing to fear. Those who are in the vine have nothing to fear but often life will hurt. Those who are in the vine, you don't have anything to fear. You're in the love of Christ. You're abiding, but often life is going to hurt. Pruning always happens for a fruit-bearing branch. The branches who do bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That we may bear more fruit. Pruning is to a branch, or rather pruning a branch is to a gardener like a barbell is to a weightlifter. It's going to hurt but it's gonna produce some growth and it's gonna produce strength. Jesus assures his disciples in verse three that they don't have to worry about being cut off. He's speaking directly to an original audience here. He says, you're already clean or pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. D.A. Carson, he's just um, a heavyweight when it comes to uh, theology and, and Greek and Hebrew and all of that. He says, what is meant here is that Jesus' teaching in its entirety 
including what he is and what he does, all of who Christ is, has already taken hold in the life of these followers, which means the life that's in him is already pulsating through and in their veins. They believe. They're clean. You don't have to get your act together. Our work is to abide in Christ and to keep following him and look to him. Pruning, though, comes most frequently in the form of loss. Pruning often comes in the form of loss. Jesus would say things to his disciples in the New Testament like, in this world, you're going to have all kinds of trouble. You're going to have trials of many kind. People are going to hate you on account of my name. They're going to hate you for my name. You're going to be dragged before governors. You're going to be kicked out of your synagogues. You're going to be kicked out of churches. People are going to do all kinds of really hard, brutal, ugly things. And you're going to suffer. And not only that, but bodies are going to fail. Friends will leave and abandon. Parents will die. And your expectations will not all be met. Nobody likes suffering. And I'm not being tried about it. I'm not being light about it in this moment. Suffering is always unwelcome in the moment, is it not? Like, we just want out. No, this cannot be happening. There's one curious and very big difference between those who are suffering deeply who abide in Christ versus those who are suffering deeply who do not abide in Christ, but rather trust their own resources and strength. Those who entrust themselves to Christ through their suffering, end up with the joy of Christ Jesus in them while they're suffering. Things not going our way has an uncanny, impeccable record of getting us to call out to God for help. Does it not? When things do not go our way, there's this impeccable record. Like we are regularly leaning in his direction saying, help, get me out of this. It's, it's really interesting to me how, like, there's some of you that I've had an, an opportunity to, like, just be a friend to and be alongside in the course of your suffering. And, like, we often will show up to the side of one of our friends or family members who is suffering, who know Christ deeply and are leaning on him. And we kind of show up with this idea that, man, I really need to be there for them. And we kind of think of ourselves as an encourager and a comforter, and we're going to help them. And how weird is it that when our friends are suffering and abiding in Christ, we, the encouragers, are the ones who often come out comforted, encouraged, built up in our strength. It's really, really wild how those who rely on the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of their suffering speak about him with a kind of power and a kind of presence that actually encourages us. It's not as much the other way around. Time and time again, I get to hear your stories and walk a light alongside you, a witness to your suffering. And time and time again, I have these ringside tickets to the fights that strengthen your dependence on Christ. And dependence on Christ always leads to maturity in him. Our dependence on Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is alive, by the way, who has beat death, by the way, who is not in the grave like the other prophets and gods of this age and other world religions. He is maturing you. Abiding in Christ always leads to joy in Christ. 
And that's exactly what Jesus wants, verse 11, that your joy may be complete. So now I'm circling back up to my very first point, and here's where we'll land the plane. If the fruit that John is, uh, that Jesus through John's gospel is directing us to bear in John 15, if that fruit is brotherly love, it's the big E on the I chart is love for one another, the quality of our abiding is revealed in how we treat one another. One of our key values as a church is that we practice the one another's in community. It's one of our values. Are we doing it well? Are we doing it awesome? We got a lot of room for improvement, but it's there to keep pointing us in the direction of this is what we're in pursuit of. The one another's, there's 59 unique one another's in the New Testament. There's about 100 of them because they get repeated often. They're littered throughout our New Testaments. And here's what they're always aimed at. They're always aimed at the well-being of the other, the another in your life. They're always outward focused. That's their orientation. They're aimed at our well-being. Here's a sample. Outdo one another in showing love. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Look at this one. This one is so interesting. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. That's a way to encourage brothers and sisters. Like, Jesus is real. He's beat death. He's risen. And that's, that promise is extended to us too. Like, though life hurts, resurrection is coming for each one of us who trust him. Encourage and build up one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Pray for one another. Now, how about the one another most often used in the New Testament? You guessed it. Love one another. It's repeated throughout the New Testament. A favorite theologian and pastor of mine, a guy named Ray Orland, he talks about the one another's that he can't find in the New Testament. Sanctify one another. Humble one another. Scrutinize one another. Pressure one another. Embarrass one another. Corner one another. Interrupt one another. Defeat one another. Sacrifice one another. Shame one another. Marginalize one another. Exclude one another. Judge one another. Run one another's lives. Confess one another's sins. fruit that Jesus of Nazareth is looking for in you and I. There's others too, but the big one is brotherly love, neighbor love. A lot of different ways to be fruitful, but this one, it's, the, it's a main one. Our fruitfulness is concretely evidenced in how we love others in Jesus' church. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Nobody has greater love than this, is a better way to say that probably, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What's he commanding us to do? It's to love one another. He commands you and I to abide in him and in his love for us. And as we do, we will bear the fruit of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God 
with all of your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Amen. We abide, and Jesus takes care of the fruitfulness and the love. Last thing I'll say, it's uncanny when a person meets Jesus, what is often the very first fruit of their life? The way that they begin to interact with other people around them always changes. How well we're abiding is evidenced by our love for one another. It's part evidence. Pray with me. Father, we uh, we love you. We look to you. And man, we need you. Your holiness, we need it. We struggle to abide. I'm the first in the room, and everybody is like me, and I'm like everybody. Abiding is a struggle. Rehearsing your love for me is a struggle. Staying mindful of how you have loved me as I'm trying to live alongside a person who I find it difficult to love is a struggle, and yet there's source of real power here. So Jesus, would you make us in your image as great, great, great lovers of people, sacrificial, willing to let every, like they said in the video, let every preference go to the wayside in order to keep the gospel central? Would we be willing to sacrifice deeply, to give generously, and to love not measuring how much will return to us, just trusting in you that we're secure? Please do this in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.